Hi, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of Bloomberg Intelligence Tech's Disruptors podcast. Uh, my name is Anurag Rana, and I'm a technology analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, which is Bloomberg's in-house research arm. We're delighted to have the senior partner and executive chairman of HG, Nick Humphreys, as our guest today. We look forward to chatting with Nick about the software space and the recent valuation decline and all the other fun part about technology trends. So without further delay, let's start with getting a little bit of an introduction of Nick himself you know, and the company he's part of. Thanks very much indeed for uh, having me here today, and you know, I really appreciate it. My background is pretty simple. I'm a uh, nerdy, kind of techie, kind of engineer by background, which I guess is kind of somewhat unusual for somebody that is an, an investor. But I started off kind of doing electronics and computer science at uh, a university, and really that was because of a passion for all things that really could be enabled over the very long term by obviously the development of the microprocessor and, and everything that's kind of stemmed from that. And that kind of passion still sits with me today. I, uh, I still kind of look at things, I guess, through the lens of products and what those products are able to do for productivity, you know, for the end customers. That's still what, uh, what gives me a huge kick out of uh, the investments that I make. So I've been in private equity for 32 years, pretty much straight out of university. The first three or four years, I was a generalist investor across any sector. And I can tell you, as I tell my wife about three years into that experience, that uh, I was pretty sure I was going to get fired because I lost just about as much money as I'd made in those first three years. I really didn't know what I was doing. And I remember going home to her in 93 and saying, I think just before I get fired, I should try and develop a strategy. And a classic kind of engineer strategy is to go an inch wide and a mile deep to try and pick one very specific thing and to try and do it to the best of your ability. And I picked kind of software back in kind of 93, 94, not really fully comprehending kind of, you know, the amazing kind of long-term growth trajectory. I had some idea that clearly tech would be growing, but actually it's kind of surpassed, you know, mine, I suspect most people kind of wildest expectations, particularly the kind of software sector. So I've been kind of PE investor for 32 years and very specifically a kind of software and IT services investor for about 28 of those 32 years, initially with some European kind of private equity firms, uh, a, a US private equity firm that was kind of growth orientated at the end of the nineties and then joined HG in 2001 to set up their tech team, became chief executive in 2007 and persuaded my partners at the time to focus entirely on software investing. And that's really what we've done for the last kind of 15 years, pretty much exclusively. So this point in time where the largest kind of software buyout investor uh, in Europe and increasingly, you know, one of the major players in the US. And it's something that we've kind of concentrated on, as I say, for kind of 15 to 20 years as a firm. Yeah, I know it's fairly impressive. I, I, you know, I've, I've followed the software and the services space since 2004. So that's almost closer to 19 years now. And I mean, I have been shocked at what I have seen as well in terms of companies coming in, going through, being bought out, the ones that have failed. I mean, it has been truly a very massive learning experience. So perhaps, you know, let's start and talk about the, the various disruptors that are out there. When you think about the technology in totality or software in totality, how do you pick some disruptive technologies and uh, what makes you go down particular, I could say, subsector versus the others? You know, what, what gives you the edge when it comes to figuring out who the disruptors are? So to put that in context, we're a buyout or a later stage kind of software investor. And so for us, in some ways, that almost turns the disruptor question completely on its head. And, you know, we're looking not frankly to find the next kind of Google or the next Meta or, you know, the next Snapchat. That's 
put for venture guys and they do it incredibly well. We're choosing to try and find stable, mature businesses that have very, very strong kind of customer bases and, you know, very sticky kind of recurring revenues. Those businesses are still growing and they're still growing typically at kind of 10, 15, 20% per annum. So they're still very much growth orientated businesses. And it's one of the kind of misnomers, I guess, that PE buyout guys, you know, maybe like ourselves get labeled as cost cutting, no growth people. That's just not true at all. Our entire portfolio, which is 56 businesses, you know, approximately 110, $120 billion of enterprise value. And it's still growing revenues at, you know, in excess of kind of 15%, more like 20% per annum. So it's growth orientated. But when we're looking for businesses, we're trying to understand what those technology disruption trends will be and essentially how we can benefit from them. But we're not looking to be the key test technology disruptor. So to give you an example, a number of the businesses that we pick are in what we call vertical applications. So they pick particularly kind of industry applications and they're providing software that enables key workers to be more productive, to do their job better, to do it faster, to do it more swiftly. So that could be a tax accountant completing kind of tax filings online. It could be somebody that accounted in a kind of large industrial business, making sure they can do kind of forecasts and budgeting correctly. It might be a hospital that's rostering nurses and doctors and equipment into the right kind of medical center or the right operating theater at the right time. So our, our software is essentially enabling people to do their jobs more smoothly and more efficiently. That means we take advantage of disruptive technologies like yeah, artificial intelligence and machine learning and you know, a number of the kind of subsets of those, th those industries that can benefit our companies so that we can develop our software more effectively or it can be more effective at the end user, but we're not directly investing in disruptive AI technology ourselves. That's something that really is for the venture and high growth people. No, it's, it's very well put. So perhaps let's do a little deeper dive in some of the areas that you are focused on and perhaps tell us how is it that those companies are adding value and how do they compete with the larger elements? So let's say, you know, a company that does uh, some kind of, you know, back office function, then, you know, then you have in your, you know, backyard SAP that has a very massive ERP suite. You know, how do you go neck to neck with, or how does the, your companies go neck to neck with, you know, somebody like a such b bigger player? that has far better or deeper pockets as it comes to R&D and other sales and marketing expenses? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. And I mean, the simple and very quick answer is you don't, you know, do not, uh, you know, it's a very, very strong mantra. Do not try and go up directly against, you know, $100 billion businesses that have got, you know, 20, 30, 40 billion on their balance sheet and spend 10 or 20 billion per year on R&D and sales and marketing. I think that would be not necessarily suicidal, but it kind of feels like it wouldn't be the kind of like winning strategy. So what we've tried to do is to think very carefully about those large businesses, where they play, where they're strong, where they have inherent lock-in and advantages, and frankly, just not to compete head on with them. So a kind of classic example, if, if you want to pick SAP or Oracle, would be that they are very strong in very large enterprise, multinational ERP for very big businesses. So we don't compete there. Where we do choose to compete, for example, and we do this very serially, is in tax and accounting software for small and medium-sized businesses in local countries. So we've backed the leading business in small and medium-sized accounting in all of the Nordic regions, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Denmark. We've done a similar thing in SMB or lower end of mid-market in the UK, the business called Access. We have another business we backed that is a leader in kind of SMB mid-market payroll in Germany, SAP's Heartland, 
and, and similarly across many different geographies. Uh, and the reason for that is that those large businesses that cater so well to very, very big multinationals simply cannot, and they've tried multiple times, but they cannot come down and somehow shrink their software or change their sales force to sell at you know the price points that SMBs require. So very, yeah, very simply, the average SAP customer probably pays, I'm guessing, of the order of you know, 10, 20, 30 million dollars a year at least. The average SMB bit bookkeeping or payroll customer for Visma or Access or Iris or PI, our portfolio companies, is probably paying less than ten thousand dollars per year on a subscription. So the R and D required completely radically different. The Salesforce required, the channels to market, pricing, packaging, everything is so different. It's kind of like asking why doesn't SAP go into coal mining or something? The, yeah. the two are just not the same question, even though they yeah. sound very similar. Yeah, no, it's, it's a very good point. And, and, you know, I cover Shopify. It's a Canadian company. And one of the things we ask them is, you know, how can you go into different countries? And we always hear about, you know, the language issues, the local tax issues. You know, there's so many things that are differentiated. So, you know, when we, even when you look at a large tax and accounting company, like an Intuit or uh, you know, Microsoft smaller SMB ERP package. What is the value some of your uh, backed companies are offering? Is it the the localization of the software uh, based on local laws? And I'm assuming all of them do plug into larger ERP systems. It's exactly what you just called out. It's basically the local tax and compliance and other laws differ basically by nation state. So if you look at the US and pick SMB bookkeeping software or tax software, then clearly Intuit's the leader, $100, $120 billion enterprise value business. And that's because, you know, you don't need an Intuit of California and an Intuit Mark II of New York. Actually, although there are some obviously minor differences by states, the bottom line is you can have a single business that extends across all 50 states and it provides the same kind of package with a, a few minor tweaks. But it's completely proven over 20, 30, 40 years that the leader in tax software in the UK has really got next to no capability to extend into Germany. Every rule, every regulation, even just the setup of how general ledgers and books look is completely different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So other than roll-ups where people have acquired across countries, there are no examples in the history of the universe. Let's say the last 30, 40 years is a little bit short of the history of software. There are just really no examples of businesses that have successfully transitioned those compliance products across boundaries. It's all about having a business that is really expert in its local market and really understands not just current regulation, but actually the last 10, 20, 30 years of regulation and how asset values have been stored in the system and all those kind of things. No, I, I completely agree. In fact, for a startup, somebody who wants to do a startup, these are very good areas to focus on, whether it's by verticalization or geography. But one of the things I never understand is after, after a company has gained, let's say, 30, 40% market share, where is the growth going to come from? Is it going from upsell more services? Is it going to come from pricing? You know, how do you advise them to say, okay, what's your next phase of growth coming? Because now you have conquered a large portion of the market already. Great question. And to be honest with you, kind of 15, 20 years ago when we started doing this, we absolutely asked ourselves that question in, in, in real depth uh, because you're essentially trying to build a really nice market position and a really kind of good customer base, but in a relatively defined total addressable market. So it's almost the opposite question that a venture capitalist asks themselves. You know, the venture capitalist wants to say, I've got 100 billion, 200 billion, 500 billion TAM available to me. And in these markets, we're talking about a market of maybe a billion or 2 billion revenue total. 
So exactly the kind of thing that would turn a large company or a, a VC off. What we found is that if you own what we call the core system of record, you know, you own the general ledger for bookkeeping, or you own the employee record for kind of HR and payroll, or you own the asset register when you're talking about kind of hospital resources being kind of allocated. Once you own that core record and you've got data and people are used to entering data for your system, you then often find opportunities where you can extend the system and either build an additional module or acquire add-on businesses that provide kind of support and systems around your core system. So if you take the core bookkeeping system, we're not doing visuals here. I was about to hold my phone up and demonstrate the use of kind of expense reporting on your mobile phone. But if you go back kind of 10 years or so, a bookkeeping software provider wouldn't have been able to provide an expense reporting system because most of us were doing kind of corporate expenses on a spreadsheet or on a piece of paper, frankly, at the time. But obviously now we all have the ability to kind of use our iPhone camera, scan the receipt. It uses some kind of machine learning technology to kind of import that into the system. And so expense reporting is now a very standard add-on for somebody that provides the kind of core bookkeeping system to a small business. And it's pretty meaningful. The usage suddenly extends from maybe the bookkeeping system in a, in a hundred person business, the bookkeeping system perhaps would use by two or three, four people in the accounting department, but the expense reporting system is used by probably 70 or 80 or 90 people in that business. So although the kind of price per expense reporting app is going to be lower, the potential kind of revenue opportunity can be perhaps as big or even bigger than the kind of core bookkeeping system. And for expense reporting, think about cash forecasting, cash collection, budgeting. There are literally kind of 20, 30 type modules that sit around a kind of core system of record. Yeah. See, what I have observed, there are three different kinds of you know, I guess add-ons. One is exactly what you mentioned. You have a core system of record and you create a new functionality and you charge a little bit upscale for that. Then yep. the second model is something like Salesforce does quite a bit that you have the customer in hand for one product. Then you go out and try to sell them different product. There may or may not be any coherence between the two products itself. And the third one is you tie them with a payments setup where you get paid as a percentage of GMV and as the world, as they grow, you grow along with it. When you have looked at different business models in these three categories, which one do you find a, a better business model, both in terms of stickiness, attrition rates, and margins, and, and why? So we definitely find the first, the most easy to predict and the most easy to operationally deliver. So add-on modules, add-on functionality. And I think that's for two or three different reasons. The first is particularly with cloud. So in, in the old world, it was fairly difficult to kind of upsell somebody to a new module because you had to kind of ship it and then persuade them to get it downloaded and all those kind of things. But obviously in the kind of cloud environment, I can present you with the credit control module just as you're about to approve a customer. It can be there live on your screen. A single click means you can go and use it. You can maybe pay in retrospect after you've used it five or 10 times. So you can even try it for free. So the cloud and, and SaaS software you know, really presents you with a very unique opportunity to kind of make these upsell of incremental services very easy to be consumed by the, the user. And, you know, you can take micropayments and, and all those kind of things much more easily. So I'd say that first one is really the one we go to every single time. And it seems to be the one where you get large scale adoption by kind of customers. So frankly, I think it's, it's the easiest one for us as an investor and a management team to implement. And it's the one that seems to be easiest 
most easily consumed by the kind of end customer, which kind of suggests that, you know, it's wanted as well, obviously. I think we find the second one in some ways the hardest. So trying to sell a parallel product that really doesn't have direct relevance to the first product, often that can require a, a whole new sales motion. Often it means you're talking to a different buyer. In a lot of ways, it's really just like a brand new sale. The fact that you happen to have a kind of corporate logo above it that suggests that they should buy gives an element of comfort. But in a lot of ways, I think that's like a brand new kind of virgin sale. So that's that's the one we probably find the uh, the hardest. And I'd say the third is, I think, a really interesting opportunity in, in certain circumstances. We, frankly, try and think very carefully about when we use kind of pricing and packaging. I know that's a kind of private equity kind of person's kind of go-to, you know, way of Increasing revenue often, but it can often be quite a short-term solution to kind of get revenue growth and it can impair your longer-term growth. And we're very, very clearly focused at HG about how we can build businesses that sustain and grow at good rates, but over kind of decades, not just over kind of three or four years. And so we do think carefully about pricing and packaging, and there can be certain circumstances in which it's very applicable to say, you know, I used to charge you on a seat basis. But now actually you're consuming kind of in a different way. You, the user, are using my software in a different way to the way that you used to. And actually it's probably more applicable that I charge per transaction or per interaction or per record stored, or you know, there can be lots of different models on the per X pricing model. So I think it's something we think about very carefully. We do apply it quite carefully and, and with the thought to the long term, not just frankly boosting kind of revenues in the first two or three years. Yeah, no, it's it's a very good point. And I think you put it very nicely, all the three different business models. And I like the first model as well. Um, you know, one of the companies I cover is Workday. And over the years, it has done a very good job of adding more modules into their core system. And it's actually done well in terms of very high customer satisfaction rate, very low customer attrition rate. So from that point, it works very well. In your experience, when you have seen a company that's going down that route and you suddenly start seeing them lose to a competitor, what kind of competitor does come along and, uh, you know, that leads to the demise of a software company? Because I find it very hard to believe that software companies can lose customers in the, you know, over time, but they do. I mean, customers do go from one platform to the other. What are some of the mistakes these companies make that you have identified and you tell your uh, companies not to take? Yeah, I mean, by the way, I think in kind of Shopify and kind of work there, you've identified two absolutely brilliant kind of companies that I do think very, very carefully about the long term and how they grow their business over decades, not just over a year or two. So I think that I'm not surprised at all that you uh, spend time kind of studying them and, and working with them. I, I say, I think the root cause of most kind of decline for kind of software businesses is probably one of two things and they're somewhat linked. So I think one is around about every kind of 20 years we get you know, major platform disruption, as, as you know, I'm sure all the listeners know. So, you know, we move from mainframes to yeah. kind of Wintel and, and client server kind of architecture. And then we've moved from client server architecture to obviously kind of cloud architecture. And those major platform disruptions, I think, are probably the number one reason that businesses decline. So we all know it's incredibly difficult to transition through those kind of platform architecture changes. And, you know, the great mainframe companies that are going to 70s and 80s, you, you know, the names Unisys, et cetera. Nobody knows the names anymore because they all disappeared pretty much. And similarly, you can climb server to kind of the cloud. I think there's been some stunning examples of businesses that have made a great transition, obviously, kind of people like Adobe and kind of Microsoft, et cetera. 
but there are probably going to be, and we'll find out over the, really the next five, 10 years, some really good examples of businesses that, you know, just don't exist anymore kind of 10 years from now. So I think that's the major disruptive factor that can happen is every approximately kind of 20 years or so. I think kind of allied to that is essentially a lack of investment in kind of product. And I think you know, at the heart of every software business is a founder who came up with a good product and that product had a real kind of customer usage and they then developed that product. So kind of customers got real kind of utility out of it and real productivity out of it. And they charge kind of fair price for that, not just on day one, but over time. And I think if you break some of those fundamental tenants, software businesses kind of take a long time to damage, but when they do become damaged, I think they kind of gradually then, then die. And so there are multiple examples, I think in the kind of on-prem kind of windows world where businesses were great with a product kind of, you know, 15, 10, 15, 20 years ago, they frankly probably got over margined. People cut costs, achieve fantastic profit margins for two, three, four, five years. But those profit margins were essentially being achieved at the degradation of customer enjoyment, customer quality, product quality. And by the time that a competitor came along that was a small cloud startup that had innovative new software, the bigger, older company was then trying to play catch up, but it was essentially four, five, six years behind. And it's incredibly difficult to come from four, five, six years behind on product development and to catch up again with a, a new cloud startup. So I think you're just starting to see, frankly, the demise of some of those kind of on-prem names that have essentially done exactly that. They've cut costs, their profit margins have been too high for too long, and they're going to be damaged by kind of SaaS competitors. And I mean, candidly, we see that in our market. You know, it's something we've been very conscious of for 10 or 15 years, because obviously we've got a history that goes back 20 plus years in this sector. So we've probably made some of those mistakes ourselves kind of 20, 30 years ago, and we try obviously not to make them in the last decade or so. But I think that essentially systemic underinvestment in kind of product, which gives you a short-term profit boost, but a long-term decline. I think that's the second key reason. Yeah, no, I, you know, when you were defining this space, I could have, you know, in my mind, I filtered at least 10 companies in the two different buckets that you said, the ones that are investing aggressively, the ones that are enjoying the high profit margin and then getting attacked by a new entrant. Let's talk a little bit about the different areas where you focus on. Is there, you know, you, you talked about some vertical software, vertical areas, but are there any functional markets such as, you know, whether it's cloud infrastructure or within that ITSM or any other areas that are specifically close to your heart uh, that you think has a massive still untapped potential uh, out there? Because I'm, you know, I'm assuming nobody wants to go out and compete aggressively with the office suite, but there are certain, you know, disparate markets where there are still massive growth opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I would say... Those areas for us are developmental in the sense that they're not areas where we've invested heavily historically. And that really stems from the fact that we were 10, 15 years ago, almost entirely kind of European based. And we felt that frankly, you needed a good foothold in Silicon Valley and, you know, other areas of the States to be able to really understand how some of those areas of kind of DevOps and ITSM, as you say, would really be developing. So it's not been a strong area for us at HG, but it has been a good area for a number of our competitors. And it's an area that as we grow into the States, you know, which we've done over the last kind of five to seven years, it's an area that we'll invest in kind of more significantly. I think, frankly, anything that sits around or close to DevOps and essentially helps you run 
your applications in the cloud, you know, helps you run the kind of cloud itself, kind of spend management, optimization, all those kind of things, I think are just on a long-term secular trend for the next the decade plus that has to mean that kind of innovative companies are going to thrive. The other areas, obviously, cyber and anything connected to kind of cyber, because unfortunately, we're in a world where that's just getting more and more, more volume of it every, every week, every month. So I think those two areas in particular, I'd call out, as I say, there are, you know, some great investments that have been made serially by different kind of peers of ours in, in those areas that have done very well. Yeah, no, I, I've always wondered, Sai, but I, I, it's, that's an area that, to be honest, I don't understand because there are way too many products out there and I don't even know how companies are able to manage, uh, you know, running them on their infrastructure. Perhaps uh, do a little deep dive in the services industry. You know, when I started covering the services industry, there was a, it was considered to be far more stable, you know, not as much high margins. But then when uh, the cloud started gaining momentum, everybody was talking about, you know, the services business would be cut down by half and why would you need some of these people? But frankly speaking, they've shown very decent growth over the past, um, I would say, decade. And uh, they're still the largest portion of overall the tech pie. What's your take on how do you see the global services business or the European services business? And where do you think it goes from here? Do you think it to be to shrink over time? Or do you think it's going to keep on growing in tandem with tech spending? Just to qualify by services, you mean what I'd call kind of traditional IT services. This is people doing kind of consulting implementation, you know, those yes. kind of services. Yeah. yeah. Um, so again, you can tell probably from my question, again, it's not an area that we've invested in particularly heavily on behalf of HG. Again, for a couple of specific reasons to our heritage and where we sit, which is that we always felt that it was a slightly more complex area to invest in in Europe with many different kind of locations and geographies and rules and regulations. And frankly, we thought it was potentially something where there were inherent advantages if you were coming from geographies outside of Europe. So we understand it a little, but it's not an absolutely kind of core focus for us. I'd say it's clearly been a, an area where because demand for talent has outstripped the supply of talent on a, on a kind of like 15 to 20 year basis. You've clearly been able to build businesses very consistently. And I think you've been able to kind of develop areas of specialization as the market's matured and grown that has enabled businesses to kind of probably have higher margins than I'm guessing you would, like me, probably have that kind of very traditional services model of, you know, if you can achieve a 30% gross margin and a kind of 12% net margin, that's a great service business. And most of them only achieve that rarely anyway. But clearly we've seen large numbers of kind of companies around the world, including in Europe, on the services side, achieve kind of, you know, 15, 20% margins and consistent double-digit growth for the last kind of yeah. decade. So I think probably what you have going on is two things that are intermingled. One of them is secular and the other is cyclical, which is, I think you have this secular trend that we just referred to, which is a demand for tech and, and coding and, and implementation talent that has largely outstripped supply for the last kind of 15 plus years. And that, I suspect is a trend that will continue for the next 10 plus years. If you look at the fundamentals of the number of people studying computer science at university and all those kind of things, and you know the rate of growth of software, I still think there's probably a supply demand imbalance. But I think you also have to overlay that with you know 13 years of economic kind of upswing and positivity, and that clearly has had a kind of boosting factor for these businesses. And I suspect we're now about to kind of hit an air pocket in terms of kind of an economic recession. And all my experience for 30 years tells me that in a recession, these businesses decline. 
because there's just not as much work to go around, projects get deferred, you know, et cetera. Implementation is going to stop, people are going to conserve budget. And so I suspect that you've had a kind of decade plus experience where both of those factors were going positively. I think you've now got the secular, which will continue, but it'll frankly be countermanded by the recession. And I suspect the businesses are going to kind of suffer to some degree for the next kind of two or three years, potentially, yeah. as that kind of recessionary impact kind of hits. No, fair point. So let's, uh, you know, the two areas that's all uh, that's really front and center of our mind right now are valuations and the lack of human uh, or, or shortage of skilled labor. So perhaps let's talk about valuations because, you know, there was a different world uh, prior to the pandemic. Things were, I would say, fairly rational. You know, the the 10-year was at 2.4%. Software valuations were somewhere around seven, eight times revenue. And then I think the most expensive I remembered or most expensive large one that I remember was SAP buying, I don't remember which one, at like 12, 13 times sales. And then eventually they bought Qualtrix for a far bigger amount. But by and large, people were rational. And then came the pandemic when deals started coming out at 20 times revenue and people started buying stuff at 25 times revenue. And then now last 12 months, we have seen a, a massive decline. We have the top 180 companies we follow. Uh, they are trading at 4.5 times forward revenue. How do you deal with this massive shifts in valuation? Because I'm sure you're going with your competitors to bid on some of these companies. What's your guiding light when it comes to valuation? I mean, the simple answer is that we look at long-run trends and long-run valuations. So any one month, any one quarter in the public markets can lead you to madness, frankly. We're not a public market investor having to buy at public market prices. We basically try and look to two elements, really. One is if you take the public markets or transaction comps, you know, over a kind of five to 10 year kind of long run period, what have the average multiples been? And we think that's a pretty good guide to sanity and kind of sensible valuation principles. And then the second is obviously to kind of look at basic financing principles of what's the growth rate of cash flows? How will those cash flows mature over time? How certain are those cash flows? And therefore, kind of what discount rate can I apply to those cash flows or inversely, what multiple can I pay? So I'd say, yeah, that's been somewhat easier for us to do as an investor in businesses that are growing at 10, 12, 14%. Those businesses definitely got more highly valued in 20 and 21 than they had done previously and they are today. But the degree of kind of increase in valuations and therefore the unwind of valuations was a lot, lot more muted than it is for the very high growth businesses. So I think if you, you know, I'm sure you've seen the same graphs that I've seen uh, from lots of different banks. I mean, we think for those decent growth, you know, three to five times GDP type growth businesses that we're talking about for ourselves, we're really back to the average of 2016, 2017, 2018 type valuation of multiples. And that feels pretty consistent with the long run. You know, we might be a few percentage below or a few percentage above, depending on what it is today, but we yeah. think it's pretty consistent. And we were candidly trying to apply to our exit multiple thinking all the way through the last six, seven, eight, nine years. You know, what we had to pay was frankly what we had to pay, but we could be sure that we'd put in our exit multiple assumptions, you know, what the long run long run range was. I think it got much, much more acute if you were in the very high growth, 30 to 50% plus kind of CAGA, 100% CAGA businesses, then I think you were getting kind of multiples that were probably two, three, four times greater than they would have been as a long run average. And I think at any graph you look at, what you're going to see is that kind of COVID period of 2000, 20, 2021 is going to look like a kind of very, very, very big aberration, you know, in the last 20 years history. 
So, so the two metrics that I find very unusual and funny, you know, every time there is a boom, people come up with new ways of looking at things. And uh, this time around, there was a lot of discussion about EV to sales to growth. And that remained like a metric that everybody was throwing it out in my face. And the other one that talk, the people talk about is, you know, the rule of 40 when you are adding margins and growth rates and say which company is better than the others. You know, when you look at stuff like, to me, yes, for that particular one to two years or three years, that is valuable. But, you know, in the long run, none of that matters to me because uh, the business could be completely different and the uh, growth rate at maturity is absolutely never, not even close to what it is right now. So I, I don't look at it that way. How do you look at some of these numbers that are thrown at you? Uh, because, I, I, you know, at this point, only private equity companies are the logical buyers right now. Nobody else is doing massive purchases. So, you know, when you're competing with your competitors, how do you get your arms around the, these two concepts? So I would say, kind of, yeah, I, I certainly agree that, kind of, you know, price to sales to growth or EV to sales to growth, you know, you end up with, I think it essentially is a shorthand proxy for some underlying number that probably relates to what normalized cash flow multiples would look like. And I actually was having this debate with one of my colleagues literally yesterday. You know, so if you're kind of paying 0.3.4 kind of, you know, price to sales to growth for a 15% kind of growth business, you kind of work it back and say, well, actually, if the business is making 30% cash flow margins, I'm kind of paying like low 20s kind of cash flow multiple, which you know, on a long-term basis for a kind of 15% growth business, when you work it back, it's kind of sensible. So I think it's just a kind of proxy for some other multiple that is a more sensible multiple to use, if I must be honest with you. I think kind of rule of 40, again, you know, you should never use these things as hard and fast rules. Different businesses, you know, will perform very differently. Exactly. What's your gross margin? You know, what's your kind of cost of sales? All those kind of questions that I'm, you know, I'm sure we, we could talk through at infinitum. I think we find those so the, the rule of 40 metric is kind of useful to kind of plot and then try and see if we have businesses that have very similar models. So, for example, we've got, as I mentioned, a whole stack of businesses that are in an SMB tax and accounting. They're doing pretty similar things for similar customers, at similar revenue per customer with similar gross margins. And I think at that point, it is valid to say, well, you know, we have one business that's growing at 15% and making kind of, you know, 10% margins. That's not true. We don't have any of those, by the way, but anyway. And, you know, we have another business that is growing at kind of like 17% and making kind of 35% margin. That's some pretty radically different sales and marketing spend, R&D spend. Why is that going on? Should we go and look at, is one business underspending? Is the other business overspending? You know, what are the efficiencies, et cetera? But I think ultimately all of this kind of comes back to, you know, I'm, I'm not a finance person by background, as you can tell. So I don't actually spend my time doing whack calculations and DCS and all those kind of things. But ultimately, the value of a business is about its cash flows into the future, the certainty of those and a discount rate. So I think it all comes ultimately back to what you want to pay for a business that's generating cash flows. No, it's, it's very well put. I mean, I cannot tell you how much I uh, think alike in that term, because I, I find a lot of this thing absurd without looking at the business model and the um, the overall unit profitability of the of the business. Let's talk a little bit about the competitive just, just, landscape. I'm just going to, sorry yeah. to interrupt, but I, I, if you want a real bugbear, that, I mean, the thing that we find most frustrating probably out of any of those things is actually EBITDA because yes. EBITDA, there's actually a very interesting kind of graph. If you graph over time, the adjustments to EBITDA that you're being asked to pay as an investor, the, the, the figure that actually expands more in a bull market is not actually EBITDA multiple. 
it's the correlation between adjusted EBITDA and EBITDA or the lack of correlation, actually. Yeah. So it's it, yes, you have to pay a higher multiple in a bull market, but it's actually a higher multiple of a much worse, arguably, I'd say a BS EBITDA figure. So that's ultimately why we spend a lot of time, frankly, focusing on cash flows. No, exactly the same way. I view in my discussion and writing, you will never come across or you rarely would not come across EBITDA unless the company puts it and we have to write it down that this is what they did. But that's not a figure of uh, you know valuation when I look at uh, companies at all. Let's let's talk a little bit about the competitive landscape. And you you said a couple of times that uh, you know you're far more penetrated in Europe than other areas. Who are the top few competitors that you bump into all the time? And and you know when you would win a win or lose a deal in certain case, you know what are some of the reasons uh, that happens? Yes, I'd really say in software buyouts of the type that we've talked about fairly sizable software businesses with several hundred millions of revenue and 40, 50 million of EBITDA or more. Really, there are kind of three of us probably globally that just focus exclusively on that marketplace and are at a scale where we would see each other on a regular basis. And it's really HG ourselves kind of hailed in from Europe and then probably Toma, Bravo and Vista out of the US. And, you know, we get on well as firms. Uh, we have slightly different styles and different approaches you know, and different things that we have kind of expertise in. So we actually probably come across each other probably less frequently than people might imagine. In addition to kind of those firms, I'd say you've then got a couple of other categories. So you have firms that have done a lot of software investments, but have done them perhaps alongside other sectors. So software will be a proportion of what they do, but it's not exclusively what they do, like ourselves or Tober and Vista. That will include firms like TA, Wilbur Pinkers, General Atlantic, Pamira, Apex, and a number of other names. And then you have a, a third group, which is really the very broad generalist private equity and, and generalist alternative asset managers. So the very biggest names in private equity, KKR, Blackstone, Apollo, kind of TPG, et cetera, all of whom would have software as a proportion of what they do, but again, a relatively small proportion of their overall business. You know, in, in within PE, it might be 20% of what they do. And if you look at the wider real estate infrastructure and all those kind of things, it's going to be a single digit percentage of their overall investment portfolio. So we see all of those kind of people across different businesses that we look at, but I would say we see very, very few competitors on a very consistent basis. It's a large market. In, in Europe alone, there are two or 300 investments that we could make in B2B software of the style we've talked about alone. And that's not B2C, it's not infrastructure software. In the States, that number is probably kind of one and a half times larger. So this is a market of kind of four, five, six hundred investments per year. And even the largest and, and the most significant players like our, ourselves, you know, we'll be doing 10 investments per year, probably the most. So it's a very large market and, and beyond a small number of people that do this exclusively, it becomes very fragmented very quickly. No, fair point. All right. So we're running on, uh, on time and let me dive into the last area that, uh, that is truly important right now is a massive shortage of labor in the IT market. I mean, if you look at unemployment figures in this space, I mean, you just can't find anybody and that normally leads to massive amount of wage inflation. You know, how do you counter that in your portfolio companies or for that matter internally? And how do you think this gets solved? That's my bigger thing that I can't get my arms around is how, how do we solve this massive problem of shortage of technology skilled labor? To be honest with you, we try to run with it essentially. I mean, this is Candidly, this is very skilled people getting paid well for doing a very skilled job that have spent a lot of time educating and developing themselves. And so 
I think our job is to attract the right talent and to have good enough businesses, you know, that have strong products and growth that you can get to pay the right amount of wage for, for the right people doing a very, very skilled job. So, you know, we're not in the game of trying to somehow get cheap labor or to somehow minimize the amount we pay developers. We think developers are gold dust, frankly. And, and so we, you know, our job is to make ourselves an attractive place, whether it's HG or our portfolio companies to make ourselves a really attractive place for people to curve, to produce, you know, what is a really skilled role. I think on a more societal level, kind of, you know, how do we, you know, change this so that more people get those skills and therefore we can get a diversified the workforce. I think it's ultimately about education. Um, and it's ultimately about making these roles seem even more attractive to people who are in their teens and thinking about which careers they want to go into. And so, you know, we're spending a lot of time and money, you know, we have a HG foundation and that HG foundation is dedicated pretty much exclusively to trying to develop IT and computer science and similar skills amongst people, you know, in the kind of younger generation, generally those who have got a slightly less advantaged background than, you know, than we're fortunate to have. And I know a number of our peers are doing similar things as well. So I think it's going to multifaceted, but ultimately it's about making these jobs really attractive to people so they choose them as careers. And again, it's difficult for me to going to say why people wouldn't view it as attractive. You know, they're well-paid, highly skilled. They create great businesses, which are innovative. So, you know, I personally obviously find this area fascinating, but I'm getting back to my kind of nerdy teenage self. No, it's excellent. Developers are like gold dust. If, if, if you're okay with it, I may use it in my writing someday. That's, that's pretty powerful, actually. I really believe it. If you look at the skills it needs to do this and to do it at a really, really top level, it's an incredibly hard and very, very important job. Yeah, fair point. This has been an exciting conversation, Nick. We have learned so much from here. I, I hope uh, you had a good time too. With that, we will wrap it up and hopefully we can get you back a year from now. I had a great time. Thank you very much. It's been really good fun. And I look forward to doing it in the future. Thanks.